Hey, this is Joseph Massonary. I'm the pastor at Cornerstone, and this is our podcast. I want to thank you for joining us today. I hope this inspires you. I hope this helps you build your faith. I hope in some way that God will challenge you with a new perspective as you listen. Enjoy the message. How's everyone doing today? Got a good word from Sean this morning. It is good to be in God's house. If you have a Bible, would you open it up? And we're going to start off and begin this morning in what has become one of my favorite books of the entire uh, Bible, the book of Esther. Would you open up your Bible to the book of Esther? And, and what a, a great morning to be in church. And I echo what Sean was saying. It's just good to have so many families here and looking out and seeing people holding hands and seeing you worship and seeing you lift your hands as husband and wives and families. And so it's, it's a wonderful thing to, to be in church together. Can we welcome all of those that might be streaming with us? What's going on no matter where you're from or maybe you're watching in Washington? or Oregon, or different spots around the, the country, but we want to say hi to all those that might be uh, streaming in. We had the, the honor of hosting a marriage conference this last Friday night and yesterday, most of Saturday afternoon, and it was just a, a fantastic time to get into the Word, to hear from some pastors and leaders in our city, and uh, also to hear from Mrs. Kimberly Malloy. If you know Kimberly Malloy, she's a, a wonderful champion in the Valley, but I just wanted to take a moment and can we say thank you? Thank you, Miss Kim. She doesn't like when we do that, but we had a wonderful time. I, was, I had this idea like on the way to church and this is what happens. Pastors get ideas and it's a bad thing because then we have ideas and then we're like, okay, who wants to run with this, right? But Kimberly, I thought we should do that like uh, and, and we could call it a date night or a tune-up night or a let's get busy night or whatever it is, right? But we should have a marriage night like once every six months. But like it'd be fun to like do like a three-hour, like a like once every three months or six months. And like let's get together on a Friday and bring in Vernon Fox again or, or bring in some of those amazing speakers and have like a three-hour like hang out. Let's rock, rock it and have a good time, right? It was, it was a wonderful, wonderful weekend to be in God's house. And what's even cooler is I noticed a lot of the folks from our church that attended the marriage conference. I see you all over the place. We also came back for church on Sunday. Yeah, baby, right? Like the most important, right, Jenny, right? We're all here. So this is the place to be. It's good stuff. Well, if you have a Bible, uh, open it up, the book of Esther. We're going to talk about a, a topic. The fun stuff is over because now we're getting busy. We're getting serious. Uh, we're going to talk about a, a, a topic that each of us deal with, something that no matter what season in life, you, you may be facing this right now or multiple versions of this, but this word called, this word called crisis. We're going to look at how the world deals with crisis. And actually, very often, don't we see around us how the news and how people and how social media and how, how those around us respond to crisis? We often see how the world responds with a sense of panic when it's time to overcome an obstacle. But today, we're going to get into God's Word. And I hope to leave you with this and understand that as Christians, we should be different when it comes to crisis. We should be different when it comes to our response to crisis. Not that it won't happen, not that it isn't inevitable, right? But how we respond to crisis and how we face it. We're going to look at two wonderful leaders and heroes in Scripture. I've titled this message, The Crisis of a Queen and King. We're going to look at two separate heroes of the Bible and see that they dealt with emotions that we deal with. 
right? It jumps off the page if we read through Scripture slow sometimes. A lot of times we think our heroes have it all together, don't we? We noticed that in our marriage conference yesterday. Like you look at a marriage and theirs must be perfect, but I'm this way or we're doing this, right? A lot of times we look at people and we just assume the best because of what Instagram shows us, which is the highlight reel. I remember a, a young man I knew that years ago pitched for the Texas Rangers and he made a comment to his dad who was a pastor. His locker room was next to Jose Canseco and Rafael Palmero. And he made this comment as a rookie, tiny little left-handed pitcher. He said, Dad, they're normal guys just like us. And he said, but they're a lot richer, <laughs> right? It was interesting, right? But, you know, we look and we think people like out there are so different and they don't have the problems that we deal with. But we're going to look at Esther this morning first. And you know it's time to go into a season of prayer and a season of fasting when you are surrounded by this word called fear. How many of you would agree that culturally and in our community even, in our block, in our country, but even around the world, this word fear has played a part of our lives. You know it's time to fast and to pray, which we've been doing with our Foursquare denomination for 21 days. When you are surrounded by fear, that is the time to fast and to pray and to come before the Lord, but also to do something that we are going to talk about as well. There's a lot going on in our world today that is enough to make us fearful. I think of um, like my favorite UFC fighters back in the day. Anybody here enjoy the UFC boxing? Is UFC your jam or is boxing? Or does it have to be one or the other, right? I used to love it back in the day when it was like Chuck Liddell and Quentin Rampage Jackson and, and those different guys. But I think of somebody in this combat arena, somebody in the UFC or, or, or your favorite fighter, your favorite boxer. And I think of crisis with this picture in mind that relating to this image that, you know, there comes a moment in a fight where sometimes one of the fighters gets backed into a corner and they just begin to get battered. They just begin to get hit with punch after punch and they're just getting blow after blow and they're getting wobbly, right? They're ready to go down and, 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 the, and the blows do not stop. It's usually a relentless barrage where I think of crisis like this barrage where you almost walk through life with a sense of, have you ever done this where you're just emotionally closed off and you're walking through life with a sense that you're just covering up waiting for the next blow? You're waiting for the next hit to land, but you don't know where it's coming from. You can't see it. You're covering up, but inevitably you get hit time and time again with crisis. And in the real world, sometimes emotionally it feels like there's, there's no Herb Dean. There's no referee to stop in and blow the whistle. There's nobody there to call off the fight and, and make the barrage, make the battering stop to make the crisis stop. You can't stop the fight because no one's there to blow the whistle. I want to talk to you today about a queen. Her name is Esther, and it's one of the most fascinating books of the Bible when you we read it. We did a series on it a couple years ago, and it quickly became one of my favorite stories in Scripture. There's no prayer in this book of the Bible. There's no worship in the Bible. God is not even mentioned in the book of Esther. It's an interesting book, but we see how God has his hands upon this young woman. We see how God has this, his hands upon her family. She and her, her family member, Mordecai, I'm going to uh, kind of summarize a few things in this today because I want to get to the king that we're going to speak about as well. So the first character we're going to talk about is Esther, if you want to put that into your notes. She has a family member named Mordecai, and they, they enter into power or this situation, or they find themselves living life 
near or in the palace. She becomes the queen. She is in the palace. And they get there for one reason and one reason alone, because of this woman's beauty. The Bible says that Esther was pleasant in face and form. That's what the Bible says about this young woman. Guys in the house, you want to compliment your wife today? Go out to lunch and say, baby, you are pleasant in face and form. <laughs> Just do it and see what happens, right? She might giggle. She might laugh, right? That's the biblical way of saying she was smoking, right? That's a nice way of saying Esther had it going on. Esther was good looking. But the reality is she gets put into palace life for something, attributes that she cannot control. The Bible says that this king, his name was Ahasuerus. We know him in history as King Xerxes. He's the, he's the king from that movie 300. Remember him, right? He's an interesting fellow history. He, he, uh, he, uh, let me just put it like this. If there's kids in the room, culturally, this was, this was a, a, a strange time. He was into some things that are, are very wrong. But there's something about Esther. She becomes his wife. And if you look at Esther chapter 3, her family member Mordecai, he gets on the wrong side of a powerful man. Have you ever been on the wrong side of your boss at work? Have you ever received a promotion and then all of a sudden what you thought was a promotion and a blessing you end up getting with this, this crazy control freak of a boss that is like just all over you, right? So what you thought was a blessing quickly becomes just a struggle. Mordecai finds himself on the wrong side of a very powerful man. He's actually number two in the whole kingdom. He is the second most powerful man in the entire known world at the time. His name is Haman. If you have your Bible, would you look at Esther chapter 3, verse 1, and let's begin to get into God's Word this morning. Let's read it together. Sometime later, King Xerxes promoted Haman, son of Hamabadatha. Right? Sometimes when you read Scripture, don't feel bad. We look at these names too, and you just, uh, I'm like, oh my goodness, right? He's the Agite over all the other nobles. But you know what, I want to I just mention this one thing. And this is kind of something that came to me in first service. Uh, we can kind of skip through Scripture and go, oh, he was, he was an Agite, whatever the heck that means, right? But if you're familiar with Scripture, there was a king that, that God had told Saul, the very first king of Israel. God had told him to take care of this man named Agag. You know, it's interesting sometimes, church, like when we don't take care of things that we should have taken care of, generationally they come back to bite us. They come back to haunt us, right? That, that disobedience comes back to play a part. Saul was instructed to kill this man named Agag, and the prophet shows up and says, what is, remember that scripture when he says, what is this bleeding in my ears? What is this I hear? You didn't do what I commanded you to do. Right? We see these generations were allowed to live on. And look what happens. Generations down the road, years and years later, the Israelites pay for Saul's disobedience. Let's get back into the scripture. This man was made the most powerful official in the empire. Verse 2, all the king's officials would bow down before Haman to show him respect whenever he passed by. For so the king had commanded, but Mordecai, this is Esther's family member, refused to bow down or show him respect. They want Mordecai 
of Israel, this Jewish man, they want him to bow before a fellow man. They want him to bow before an earthly king. And he says, I, I, I'm not going to bow. Long story short, he's, he's going to serve one God. He's not going to bow before any man, even if that man is the second most powerful man in the world. He's not going to do it. Verse 5, when Haman saw that Mordecai would not bow down or show him respect, he was filled with rage. He had learned of Mordecai's nationality, so he decided it was not enough to lay hands, hands on Mordecai alone. Look at this in verse 6, folks. He had learned of Mordecai's nationality. He learned he was Jewish. So he decided it was not enough to lay hands on Mordecai alone. Instead, he looked for a way to destroy all the Jews throughout the entire empire of Xerxes. We have an evil situation developing right here. Once Haman finds out Mordecai is Jewish, he doesn't want to just eliminate Mordecai or his family members or his, his kid, whatever, right? He wants to wipe out an entire people. He wants to eliminate all the Jews. His hatred, we, we see racism right here. His hatred, his racism, it, it grows. It is so deep in him that he, his evil is so, so shocking. And we think, sometimes we live in a world where we think these issues are somebody else's problem or they're so far away. And you, you look at the history of our country and you look at where we've been and what we've walked through, right? And you, and you even look at just generations ago for grandparents when there was this man called Adolf Hitler, right? We think sometimes like these things are a thing of the past. But we see evil and hatred so deep that this leader's response to his hatred, it's not to just hurt one family or one person. It's to commit an act of genocide over an entire people group. Why does this matter to Queen Esther, who from the outside looking in, it may seem like she's a queen, man. She's living in the big house. She's got the treatment. She's doing okay for herself. Well, we find out in chapter 2, if you have your Bible, this is just a, a fun story to read through. But this week, you could read through Esther chapter 2, and we see how she becomes queen, and she gets married to King Xerxes. The Bible says he loved her more than any other woman. He couldn't take his eyes off her. She was selected, though, right? She was actually selected in what I, I think could have been a very heartbreaking process, right? Episodes of The Bachelor or Bachelorette going really wrong. She was paraded in front of, 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 of men, right? I think in almost a, a human trafficking type situation, Esther was put in this position that is sinful, right? Even the way that the Persians and Xerxes did marriage was very different than the way that people of Israel were commanded to do marriage and be with a husband and a wife. God allowed this, I think an evil thing, God allows this thing to happen, which isn't necessarily something he approves of. It's not something like what happened to Esther is, is I, don't, I don't think it's really, it's really right. It's not something he approves of, but he, he uses her to accomplish his greater purpose in a culture filled with brokenness, in a culture filled with sin. Haman sends out an edict. He sends out this secret letter to eliminate and destroy the Jews. But there's a secret King Xerxes does not know. And that is his wife Esther, which we know because we, we, we know the story in chapter 2. King Xerxes' wife is Jewish. So his second in command starts off on this journey to destroy a people group. But there's a problem and that is the king is married to a, a Jewish woman. He wants to eliminate 
her entire people. It leads to a climax of you. Have your Bible, would you go to Esther chapter 4? Esther chapter 4. And Mordecai begins to plead with his family member Esther. He says, would you please, they, they're, they're going to destroy us. They're going to slaughter our families in the streets. I need you to talk to the king. And, and, and sometimes when we don't slow down and read scripture, we think like, he's not asking that much. He's just saying, go talk to your husband. This shouldn't be a problem. Oh, oh, but it is a problem because culturally we can't even relate to the culture that Xerxes, the Bible says he had a harem. The Bible said, like, the Bible says for the, or, or, there, there's history that records the, the reign of King Xerxes. It was, it got so sick that it says the last, like, 15 years of his reign, he didn't even govern. He just, there's kids in the room, so he just played around. I'll put it that way, right? Culturally, like, we think, like, Esther, you just need to go talk to your husband. No, like, just go, no, 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 no. There was a rule that said if you were not called by the king to come and meet with him, he would kill you on the spot. We're talking about an unstable sicko that is in leadership. Mordecai says, Esther, I need you to go. I know, she says, I haven't seen him in days. He hasn't called on me. Like, they've been married for a few years now. His interests might be elsewhere. She says, if I go, like, he, 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 it's very possible he might decide to end my life. After all, it has to be stuck in Esther's mind what he did to his last wife. In Esther chapter 1, there's a woman named Vashti who was married to King Xerxes. And not to, to, to replay all of the book of Esther, but he has no problem getting rid of his original wife, right? So I'm sure in the back of Esther's mind, some wisdom like, <laughs> he had no problem replacing the last one, right? Am I up next, so to speak? Well, as we get into this passage, if she goes before the king in that culture, she's risking herself. Esther chapter 4, would you skip ahead to verse 13? Let's read it together. Mordecai pleads with her. He, he said, sent the, he sent this reply to Esther. Don't think for a moment, cuz, Esther, family member, that because you are in the palace life, you are in the palace, you will escape when all the other Jews are killed. Verse 14, if you keep quiet at a time like this, deliverance and relief for the Jews will arise from some other place, but you and your relatives will die. But who knows? This is one of the most famous lines in all of Scripture, isn't it? Who knows? Perhaps you were made queen for just such a time as this. Maybe you are here in this situation for such a time as this. Mordecai says, Esther, if you, you stay silent, you're, you're going to be killed. You're going to be... You're going to perish anyways. This king, he's a mad king. He, he might be embarrassed that he didn't know about, about, about your background. He might be embarrassed that he didn't know you were Jewish. If you keep this secret from him, there's a good chance he is going to kill you too. He offers this sobering truth. Esther, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. You know, there's something interesting, and, and would you write this down? I don't have a lot of notes, but in your, in your app this morning, or if you have some, some notes that you are, are taking, you know, there's a, a, a truth that Mordecai mentions to his family member. He says this, would you look at verse 14? If you keep quiet at a time like this, deliverance and relief for the Jews will arise from some other place. He says, Esther, if you keep quiet, God's made a promise. And God is not going to break that promise. And God, Esther, would you write this down? He's not limited to just you. 
He's not limited to just me. God is not limited to one person. God is not limited. Think of how he operates in Scripture. God is not limited to one method. God is not limited to one way of accomplishing his plan. Mordecai knew enough about his God to realize that God is going to keep his promise to his people, his covenant people, God says deliverance will come and he might use someone else. But Mordecai says, Esther, Esther, it could be you. Esther, do you think God puts you in this position, in this palace, made you suffer with this sick husband? Is this, like, is this the reason you went through all this hardship, Esther? Is to save everyone you love. Is to save your people. Esther, I believe that's why you've gone through all this. You're in a strategic position to speak truth to this powerful man. Mordecai says, you are in this position to make an impact. Let's see what else scripture has to say. Verse 15. Esther sent this message, this reply to Mordecai. Go and gather together all the Jews of Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day, my maids, and I will do the same. And then... Though it is against the law, here it is, she's breaking the law. Though it is against the law, I will go and see the king. And we see something radically change in this woman, in this leader. She says, if I must die, I must die. If I die, I die. So different from her earlier response. So Mordecai went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him to do. What do we do in a culture that is surrounded by fear? What do we do when we are in a situation that is fearful. We know it is time to pray and fast when we are just surrounded by a sense of fear. For a moment, we do see in Scripture, Esther, like we, we read about these heroes, yet if we slow down and read it, she was very human. Her response was very natural. You know, it's okay that she was fearful in this moment. Like, I don't want us to look for a moment at Esther and be like, why did she just not step up right away? No, no, no. I think like it is a normal human emotion. Like she worries about her own life. If anybody knew what her husband was capable of, I bet you it was her. Right? If anybody knew the depths of depravity that this man was living in, I bet you it was Queen Esther. So don't think for a second like how could she be afraid? Why didn't she just step up and save the Jewish people? Save her people, right? But it's interesting, the moment she gets surrounded by fear, what her response is, and look at verse 16, because here's what changed. Verse 16 is when things begin to shift her response to fear. She had a moment where she feared her husband more than, the, more than her God, but now that is all over. What changes? What makes her strong? What did she rely on? She says, have all the Jews in Susa, have all, all of our people begin to fast and have them begin to fast specifically for me. If God's put me here for just the time as this, I need the wisdom, I need the words, and better yet, I need God to show me the right timing. How many of you know sometimes you have a great message and you have the right message and you have a truthful message, but how many of you ever had a, a situation where like you need that fourth thing? It's called the right timing. Sometimes, like, you have the right thing to say to your wife, to your husband, to your family member, to your boss, to whoever it is, but your timing is terrible. Your self-control, your wisdom, like, did you talk to the Holy Spirit about, this is what I need to say, but when should I actually say it? Right? 
I think that's what Esther's trying to figure out. And as we go on in chapter 5 and chapter 6, that's exactly what happens. God lead this situation. God open the doors so I can speak truth. But let's look at verse 17 for just a moment. Because it's interesting how in verse 13 and how verse 17 looks so different. Mordecai in verse 13, if you look back, in essence, Mordecai is telling the queen what to do. She has the power. She has the position. But in essence, Mordecai in verse 13 is telling her what to do. Esther, who knows? You might be here at such a time as this. But look at verse 17. Things changed. Mordecai went away in verse 17. And now he did everything Queen Esther instructed him, ordered him to do. What happened? What changed in this short span of time, in these few days of exchanging these letters? Mordecai is saying, you need to go. You need to do this. You need to talk to the king. Now, in verse 17, I think it's amazing. I love Esther's response. She's like, okay, you want me to talk to this king? I need you to pray and fast, and I need you to start talking to that king, right? She's like, I need you to talk to the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings. If you want me to approach this powerful man, I need you to fight for me. I need you to intercede for me. I need you to start talking to our God. And to summarize this story, God stepped in. God's power showed up. God changed and turned around this entire situation. Esther chapter 7. Can we skip ahead? Is it okay? We're kind of jumping through a lot of the book of Esther. Esther chapter 7 verse 3. This evil man, Haman, shows up for a dinner party or what he thinks is a party to honor him. <laughs> And his plot, his plan, his evil, his genocide, his sickness is exposed and put on full display. Let's read about it. Verse 3, Queen Esther replied, If I have found favor with the king. And again, this is her husband. So just notice the language here, right? Culturally, because like, we're not going to be at dinner and my wife and I and like, if I have found favor with my king, husband, the pastor, whatever, Right? Like, so you see, like, she's treading on thin water. Just in her language, you can see how culturally this is so different from the world we think we can relate to, right? This is, this is, she says, If I have found favor with the king, and if it pleases the king to grant my request, let's read it together, I ask that my life and the lives of my people will be spared. For my people and I have been sold. We've been sold to those who would kill us to slaughter us and to annihilate us. If we had merely been sold as slaves, I could remain quiet. For that would be too trivial a matter to warrant disturbing the king. Right? So like if we had just been sold, right? Like this is, this is crazy, her relationship here with her husband. Verse 5, Xerxes' response. Who would do such a thing? Probably in a sense of embarrassment. I don't know if it's his, actually his care for his wife or maybe he just felt embarrassed in the moment. But he has this, this, this moment where he's like, who would dare try to kill my wife? Who would dare hatch a plan to hurt my wife, probably even in his mind, without my permission? Right? He's, he's, like, he could have he gotten rid of her. Right? This, is, this is a strange situation. Who could do such a thing? Who would be so presumptuous? Look at verse 5 to touch you. Here we go, verse 6, it all unravels in this moment. Esther replied, this wicked Haman is our adversary and our enemy. Haman grew pale with fright before the king and queen. Then the king jumped to his feet in rage and went out into the palace garden. Haman, however, stayed behind to plead for his life with Queen Esther. For he knew that the king intended to kill him. 
in despair. Look at verse 8 really closely, folks. Because sometimes when you have God's favor, God allows people to see something that isn't there. Look at verse 8. I love this. This is like my favorite part of this passage. In despair, he fell on the, coat, the couch where Queen Esther was reclining. And, and I think he fell. He, he, think about this. This guy with a silver tongue. He's risen through politics. He's risen to power. There's no doubt he was a good talker. And I could imagine him just getting on his, his knees. Esther, please don't tell your husband not to kill me. Esther, please. Esther, please. And he's begging for his life. But look at what the king sees. Here we go. Look at the end of verse 8. Just as the king was returning from the palace garden, he walked in and he sees this man on the couch with his wife, reclining there with his wife, touching his wife. The king exclaimed, will he even assault the queen right here in this palace, right before my very eyes? As soon as the king spoke, his attendants covered Haman's face, signaling his doom. Bag him and gag him, mafia style. Right? This is like, this is, how many of you love the Old Testament sometimes? Right? Whack them. This is like, I love this ending. The king is already fuming and, and he walks out. I think maybe he walked out thinking like, Haman has been a good soldier. He's been a good leader. He's made me rich, richer than I've ever. Like, maybe he's thinking like, should I spare him? I don't know. He's, he's definitely, he walks out in the garden to gather his thoughts. And when he comes back into the room, when he comes back into the palace, he doesn't see Haman begging for his life. Please, Esther, don't let him kill me. He sees Haman touching her too much. He said, like, are you even going to, like, are you kidding me right now? Is he going to put his hands on my wife right here in front of me, right? He walks back. He sees this guy, Haman, grabbing his wife. You're now going to, you're going to put your hands on my wife? I'm already ticked. I'm already embarrassed because of what you were planning to do. You were planning to hurt my wife's people. But now, it, 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 this could have made me look bad, but now you're going to manhandle her? You're going to touch her? And that's what God allowed this king to see. Look at the end of verse 9. Right at the end, or verse 8, as soon as the king spoke, they covered Haman's face. I love that he didn't even get a chance to try to defend himself. Do you notice that? He didn't even get a chance to try to use his most powerful weapon, which probably, politically speaking, was his tongue. Right? He was probably a good talker. He was good at getting what he wanted out of life. He didn't rise to his position because, I, I mean, come on, people know how to play politics, know how to do it, right? He didn't even get a chance. Verse 10, So they impaled Haman on the pole, he had set up for Mordecai, and the king's anger subsided. If you know this story, Haman, he, he set up the, the gallows. He set up a scaffold. He, he, he set up this, this pole to kill his enemy, who was Mordecai. And the way this story ends up is the whole situation gets flipped, and the script changes, and Haman is put to death on the very execution site that he had built. Do we see that? Like we talk about God showing up in a radical way. You know, when we fast and when we pray, we, we see what Esther decided to do. Have everyone fast for me. God strategically places people in positions to accomplish his plan. When we fast and we pray, God has the ability to switch things on a dime, to change things on a dime, to change the situation. Second Chronicles chapter 2, chapter 20. 
give your Bible, would you jump back with me to 2 Chronicles chapter 20. We're going to take a moment and talk about a king. A king that was surrounded by fear. You know, one of the things um, I remember just watching my dad and watching people that I, I, I watch and I think, man, they're really just wise and mature in their faith. And whether it's through the last two years or whether it's when crisis happens or people pass away, I, I watch sometimes how my dad's response is, is very often one that he walks with faith that sometimes I don't get, that I don't understand, or he's not fearful about certain things like when the pandemic hit. And I think the reason for that is because when you're around people who've walked in, with a sense of maturity for a time and a season in their life, they're able to think back how God did something yesterday, and they have the faith and the knowledge to understand that if God did it then, he's going to do it now. I may not understand it. I don't need all the details. And these, some of these things I see do are scary. But I often marvel sometimes at watching the faith of people and going, man, they're, they're not going to get shaken by this, right? Second Chronicles chapter 20. We could call this a, a Lord of the Rings type battle of three armies. Turn to someone and say, three armies, whatever. Wake them up. Snap them. Turn to your kids and say, I love you kids. We're going to watch football today, right? Turn to your spouse and say, babe, you look good today, right? Let's wake up a little bit in here. There's the Moabites, there's the Ammonites, and there's the Meunites. And they come to make war against Israel. They come to make war against one nation. Three nations unite. Three armies unite to take on one. The Bible says they have a much greater army. Let's look at 2 Chronicles chapter 20, verse 2. Messengers came and told Jehoshaphat. That's one of the coolest names in the Bible, yet when you type it out on your computer, it's really annoying to type this name, right? Japhat. Let's call him Japhat with a P-H. He has a vast army from Edom and he's marching against you. Its vast army is coming from beyond the Dead Sea. It's three armies united as one against you, King Jehoshaphat. Bible says Jehoshaphat was terrified by this news. The Bible says that Jehoshaphat, this hero of the faith, look at what it says. It doesn't even say he was afraid. Like terrified is even worse than being afraid, right? It says, Jehoshaphat is terrified by this news, and he begged the Lord for guidance. He also ordered everyone in Judah to begin fasting. So look at his response. His initial feeling is he is surrounded by a terrible sense of fear, but then look at his response. He ordered everyone in Judah to begin fasting. The Bible says he was afraid, and again, I want to stress this. Fear is not a bad thing. Fear is not something that you need to cover up, that you need to hide, that you, we, we often put on a strong face. But in fact, it's a human emotion, a very common human emotion that we are going to deal with in this lifetime. Each of us will experience it. But what do we do with our fear? What do we do with that fear, that emotion that is coming into our lives? Here's what Jehoshaphat did with his fear. Verse 3, one translation says it like this. I, I like this even more. One translation says he was afraid and he, he resolved to seek the Lord. So he, he was afraid and he resolved to seek 
the Lord. Then he proclaimed a fast for all of Judah. The king changes his focus to seek the Lord. Notice his first response isn't send out the spies and how many men do they have? Send out, I mean, you're right, you said it's three armies, let's make sure it's really three, it's not four, it's not. He doesn't respond in human, it says he was afraid and so he, he lifted his eyes. He didn't begin to look out at the problem. He didn't begin to analyze the problem. A lot of us are like, we want to fix it right away. And man, there's not like, we want to, right? He didn't try to fix it right away. It says he, he resolved to seek the Lord. And then I love this. It says the king leads a nation in prayer. And man, this is the type of prayer. And I'm telling you, church, we don't do this enough. And I know we don't do this enough because it's, it's the humor we use or I use. All of us do this depending on our outlook but I would love for our mayor, our sheriffs, our governors, our assembly women, our assembly men, our presidents, our governors, our vice presidents, I would love for them to pray like this. I would, I would hope we would pray for them to pray like this. No matter what we think of the job that they're doing, right? I would hope we would pray for our leaders. Scripturally, we are, we, we are supposed to. We aren't supposed to joke about them, right? Verse 6, look at how, look at this prayer. Man, this is unbelievable that our leader, that this king, that this king does this. He says, he prayed, O Lord, God of our ancestors, you alone are the God who is in heaven. You are ruler of all the kingdoms of earth. You are powerful, you are mighty, no one can stand against you. O oh, our God, did you not drive out those who lived in this land when your people Israel arrived? And did you not give this land forever to your descendants, to your friend Abraham? Your people settled here and built this temple to honor you. Now see how they reward us. For they have come to throw us out of your land. He doesn't say it's our land, he says it's your land. Which you gave us as an inheritance. Verse 12, oh God, won't you stop them? Right? He, he, he says, God, these are your promises, not mine. He said, God, these are your gifts. So in fact, if you, it's almost like if you don't show up, God, you wouldn't make yourself look foolish. Right? You would never do that. God, you made a promise to your people to preserve us. But then here's where his heart comes out. Look at the second half of verse 12. He says, we are powerless against this mighty enemy that is about to attack us. How many of you know, and, and it's sometimes it's, it's like we want to keep fighting our battle. I love what Jehoshaphat, the conclusion he comes to, he says, this enemy, we don't need to scout them. We don't need to go count numbers. He says, we don't have what it takes. He says, God, we don't have what it takes to win this battle. God, we are powerless to stop these guys. We are powerless, but he says this, we don't know what to do. But God, we are looking to you for help. The king says, we're afraid, but we're looking for you. Look at verse 13, if you would. As all the men of Judah stood before the Lord with their little ones. You know it's bad when you bring your kids to church, right? Like, <laughs> teasing, right? They, they always, you know it's bad when it's like, we're, it's like we got the kids, the little ones, the wives, and the children. Verse 13. You know it's bad when there's a town hall meeting and like, guys, this is bad. Because if this goes south, the kids are going to feel this too, Right? Verse 14, then the Spirit of the Lord came upon one of the men. He was a Levite. His name was Jehazel. The Spirit of the Lord fills this man. You notice, it doesn't say the Spirit of the Lord filled Jehoshaphat. 
it says this man was filled with the Spirit. You know, sometimes it's like we're waiting on uh, the opinion of whoever our earthly leader is, when in fact God wants to fill you with the word to encourage someone. God wants to fill you with the word to encourage and change and empower someone and share the love of Christ with someone to speak truth into a situation. Here's what this man, Jehazel, said. He said, listen, all you people of Judah and Jerusalem, listen. He even says, listen, King Jehoshaphat. He says, King, I know you're scared. I know you're fearful. You've been doing the best you can. You've done a good job even leading us to this prayer time and fasting. But he says, King, you listen up right now because here's what the Spirit of the Lord has to say. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. By this mighty army, for the battle is not yours, but the Lord's. Do not be afraid. Do not be dismayed. Do not be discouraged by this army because the battle is not yours. It's God. He says, even the king, you need to understand something. This is not your battle. He says, Jehoshaphat, you're, you're trying to make this your battle. I know you're scared. I know you're fearful. I know the buck stops with you. You don't want to remember it as the guy, the final king of Judah that was, that was conquered, right? Jehoshaphat had to recognize that this was God's battle. Even though he was afraid, even though his first response was to be terrified, his response after that fear hit him is what is so good, is to seek the Lord. We mentioned this other king earlier. His name was Saul. He was actually the first king of Israel before the, the kingdom was divided, before things started to go downhill, there was a king named Saul, the very first king in the nation of Israel. And when Saul, when Saul became afraid, the first time we can record this in his life, Saul was afraid of this man cursing at his fellow countrymen. He was afraid of this man cursing at his soldiers. He was afraid of this man cursing his God. This man's name was Goliath. And he stood on the other side of a battle with a giant spear, armor that you couldn't carry. He was a seasoned veteran warrior. And Saul was a king that stood by, but he became paralyzed by his fear. So much so that Saul allowed a shepherd boy named David to fight a battle that he should have fought. Do we realize that in that story? We don't need to jump all the way back into the book of Samuel, right? But the reality is Saul should have been so in touch with God that Saul should have been the one to walk out and slay that mighty giant. But this boy shows up. And he says, you know what? God kept me safe from the bear. He kept me safe from the lion. This giant will be like one of them. I'll kill him. Right? And then I love Saul. Go and may God be with you. <laughs> right? He's like, go. May, may the Lord. He throws that little tidbit in there. May the Lord be with you. Please. Somebody, good. I'm off the hook. Really, that's what he says, right? But David shows up. And it's interesting. He, he, he hears this Philistine barking at them. He hears them cursing at his people. He hears them cursing their God, embarrassing this army. This whole army has been paralyzed on the hillside with fear, not literally not moving. And David walks in as a shepherd boy and he says, who is this dog? He's barking at us like a dog. Who is this dog that defies the armies of the living God? 
That's the response David gives. gives. Look at verse, uh, verse 17. Chapter 17, verse 46 of 1 Samuel. I think we have this on the, on the handout today. David says this, and I love the smack talk that takes place here. I would love to watch the Chiefs and the Bengals play today and the Rams and the Niners play today with every player mic'd up and like we could listen to all the things that they say on the field. Wouldn't you love that? I would pay extra, like for hockey, football, basketball. Like if I could hear the things the players and the things the referees say to each other. And right, wouldn't that be awesome? We'd have to it'd have its own rating, I'm sure, right? But I, I love how we get an inside view of what goes on in the battlefield. David shows up and we get to hear commentary on the battlefield. David says, today the Lord is going to hand you over to me. I like to throw it, like I think David probably, I'd love, I'd love if he spoke even like, just, just punk him, right? David says, today I'll strike you down. Not only am I going to strike you down, I'm going to remove your head. And after I cut your stinking head off, I'm going to feed your body to the birds of the air, the beasts of the field. They're going to feast on you and all of your fellow soldiers because I'm going to kill you. Right? Hello. David walks out. Where does he get this confidence, this young man? Everybody else is running and hiding. And David says, I'm going to strike you down. I'm going to cut your head off. He says, this is the Lord's battle. He says, you've defied the army of the living God. This is God's army. How dare you set up shop against us? Today, I, I was joking about like football, but really, we, we're going to watch football today, I hope, right? And whether you're rooting for Mahomes or Burrow or Stafford or, or um, who's that Niners guy? Is he still playing? I'm teasing. I'm kidding. I was, I was kind of knocking you Niners fans. He's, of all the QBs, you know, uh, I'm teasing. But you know, these quarterbacks have a thing, like they're going to they're gonna hike the ball, they're going to snap it. And when we think of what's going on, like on that field, and it's entertainment, but that moment that they say hike and they, the ball is in their possession, right? They have an issue. And that is like usually there's a defensive lineman or somebody blitzing. There's somebody that's like 6'2 to 6'4 that runs like a 4'5'40. And they're a big man, strong man, and they're coming for them, Right? But there's this, this other position on the field that, like in today's game, we don't talk about it as much. It's, there aren't many Emmett Smiths still around, but there's a running back. And you know what's interesting? When you do watch football on those occasional running plays that they still call, right? There's this moment where a quarterback hands the ball off to a running back, and guess what? Usually you will see Mahomes or Stafford. They just kind of peel out of the play. They're out of it. They're like, this is not my problem anymore. Take it. Go, buddy. Right? They have this, this, it's like they're no longer at that moment are they going to be pursued by the opposition, right? The problem is in life, we sometimes, it's like Jehoshaphat showed us, Esther showed us, we just, we like to hold on to the ball too long. We like to like hold it on and be like, you know, I'm good. I'm going I'm to hold on to this myself. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to play hero ball. I'm going to take care of this myself. And, and really we have a God that is ready and willing to take it from us. He's, he's ready to receive that, that hand. He's ready to be handed the ball, so to speak, in life. Hand the ball. Hand, it's like we, we, don't, we refuse to hand the ball off to God. We want to hold on to it. And then we wonder why we keep getting tackled by this thing called life. Right? We, we keep getting tackled. We keep getting injured. We're like, but we're not, we don't want to hand anything off to him. 2 Chronicles chapter 20, verse 17. Can we see how this story concludes? But you will not even need to fight. Take your positions, then stand still and watch the Lord's victory. He is with you. 
O people of Judah and Jerusalem, do not be afraid or discouraged. Go out against them tomorrow, for the Lord is with you. Jehoshaphat was one of the good kings in, in Judah. He was one of the few good kings that, 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 um, that was listed throughout history. There weren't many of them after King David, I'll tell you what. But I think he was one of the few good kings because he learned what to do when he was afraid. He learned how to respond when he was fearful. Verse 18, then the king, Jehoshaphat, he bowed down low with his face to the ground. And all the people of Judah and Jerusalem did the same. Talk about humbling themselves. The king bowed down so low that his face hit the ground. He fell down and worshipped him when he was afraid. You notice Jehoshaphat and the Israelites, they haven't won anything yet. This is the night before, and the Bible says they began to praise him, even though the battle hadn't even started yet. They bowed down, and they began to give God their worship, almost as if they began to worship him in advance for what he was about to do. They began to praise him for what he was about to do. When you need faith, but you don't have it. When you want faith, but you don't know how to get it. When you need to strengthen your faith, but you have no idea, what do you do? Here's what you do. The Bible says, okay, we've prayed for 21 days. We fasted for 21 days. You want to have more faith in your situation? Here's what you do. You better get your praise going. Somebody say amen to that, right? The Bible says you better start learning how to praise him. You better start learning how to give him your praise, to tell him he's good, to tell him what he is, is capable of, right? The Bible says give him praise. Here's how this story went. We need to wrap this up today. Verse 21, kind of the second half. This is what they sang. This is what their praise sounded like. Are you ready for it? Give thanks to the Lord. He's faithful. His love endures forever. Love that. That reminds me of a song we used to sing, right? Give thanks to the Lord, our God and King, because what? His love endures forever. You can give thanks and just read Scripture, right? Jesus Christ, it's on our wall. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever, right? God, your love does not fail. It does not return void. Your word does not return void. Look what happens in verse 22. And as we finish this morning, at that very moment, so they began to sing and they began to praise. They begin to give God their worship. Here we go. The Lord shows up again, just like he did for Esther, just like he did for his people in that book. At that very moment, they begin to sing and give praise. The armies, God caused the armies of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir to start fighting amongst themselves. Look at this. These sinful armies coming against God, maybe they went crazy the night before. God said, it says, the Lord caused the armies to start fighting amongst themselves. Verse 23, the armies of Moab and Ammon turned against their allies from Mount Seir, and they killed every one of them. This is cool stuff. I love the Old Testament. After they had destroyed the army of Seir, that army was the first of three to fall. And then it says they began attacking each other. Look at this. They begin to, the three armies begin to attack each other. The last two standing begin to wipe each other out. So in verse 24, when the army of Judah showed up to fight, they arrived at the lookout spot where they figured, all right, here we go. Let's have some faith. Let's show up to this battle. We're here to fight. We don't know how we're going to win, but we know our God is good. And they show up and look at what they see, church. All they saw were dead bodies lying on the ground as far as the eye could see. Not a single enemy 
had escaped. Do you see something that is amazing here, church? They won the battle and they didn't even have to pick up a sword. They won the fight and they didn't even have to put on the gloves. Right there, they begin to praise the Lord. Look at verse 26. They praised him before the battle and then now that God has showed up, you notice it said they didn't just start go collecting all the stuff. It says in verse 26, before they started collecting all the stuff, which is going to take them a long time, verse 26, it says they just started blessing the Lord. They just started offering him their praise. Look at what happens in verse 26. It says, they were so pumped about this. They began to make the journey with all these goods, cash, money. They just hit the jackpot, right? We're going to take all this back, this hall. Verse 28, it says, on the way back to, Ju to Jerusalem, they joyfully praised him on the way back to Jerusalem. You know, if you look at your notes today, I don't have that many. I don't have like a three-point sermon for us this morning where the first letter matches the next letter and all those things that we love to do, right? Make sure everything rhymes or however it looks. But there's a theme that God wants to speak to us today, and I think it's this common theme that, that through the story of Esther, through the story of Jehoshaphat, God is saying, don't be afraid. God is saying, like, I know what battle it is you are facing. I know what financial situation you're facing. I know what diagnosis you are walking through. I know what your relationships look like. But God is telling us this morning, if he's telling one thing, he's saying, do not be afraid. Right? And it might, it, it's okay to feel that way. You may truly feel that, that way. And you may have something going on that is, is, it is okay. It is, it is okay to be afraid. But the Bible says to praise him because this battle is not your battle, but it is God's battle. So when the enemy gathers, when these three armies get together and they unite to take you down, right? When your financial situation is beginning to collapse, when your boss at work just doesn't give you any favor, whatever it is, when your marriage is just on the rocks, worse than anybody actually really knows, when you have a, a, a cancer diagnosis that you are just beyond fearful about, what does the Bible say? It says that is the time that you better start to offer him your praise. When the enemy is coming to attack, what do we do? The Bible says, start to offer him your praise. When you don't understand why you are suffering and that other person's life seems so great on Instagram, right? The Bible says to do what? Start offer him, offering him your praise. I, I think sometimes in America, and just where we are so blessed that we, we just think, man, I am just beyond worship. I'm too sophisticated to offer him my praise, to, to bless the name of the Lord, right? If there's one thing to take away, don't get too sophisticated in your religion that you don't have the relationship with God to honor him and to bless him, right? The problem is not yours. The battle is his. So when the enemy gathers church, you better start to praise him. Right? When the situation happens that you don't understand, you better start to praise him. Somebody say amen. Amen. Let's bow our heads. Let's pray. God, we praise you today. God, we declare that you are good. God, we declare we, we, you have brought us to this moment. God, we look back on how you've been so good in the past. God, we look back on how you have removed enemies. How, how even that man Haman became Esther's footstool. She just stomped him. She became his... Haman was her stepping stool. God, we look back how you've shown up in the past. And God, when we are surrounded by a culture of fear, help us shine, not because we have our stuff together, but because we have a God that is fighting our battles. 
God, we've prayed, we've fasted, we've done this 21 days around our country, around our city, around the world with our four-square denomination. God, help us now to offer you our praise. God, help me to trust that this life, this battle, belongs to you. God, thank you for your word that is living, that is acting, that, 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 that is sharper than any two-edged sword. God, thank you for the heart surgeries that you are doing in the spiritual in the life of our city and our church. God, thank you for your scripture today. It's our manual showing us how to live even to this moment. God, thank you for the example of a queen and a king who knew how to respond to the fear that they felt in their hearts. God, help us to protect our hearts, to guard them, to never take your grace or your forgiveness for granted. Maybe there are some of us here that you're just walking through a battle that something's going on, there's something that you've done, there's some way that you've failed, or there's something that you are facing. God wants to get your attention again. God wants to have your praise. God wants to have a relationship with you. If you're here this morning, you've never opened up your life to Christ, I want to give you that opportunity now. So with our heads bowed and our eyes closed, would you just pray this this morning? And you know what? Even would you lift your eyes? If that's you, if you want to say, you know, I want a relationship with Jesus, would you just pray this? And would you just even lift your hand? One, two, and three. I'm going to just ask, would you lift your hand? If you've never made a, a, a choice to follow Jesus, would you do that? Would you pray with me, church? Can we just say, God, I need you in my life. I want to be right with you. I want to have a pure heart. God, I realize I need a Savior. So Jesus, I ask that you would forgive my sins, that you would come into my life, and that you would lead me. Be my Savior. Be my Lord. God, help me when I am surrounded by fear. God, strengthen my faith. God, as I praise you, I know my faith is going to be built up. It's like a, it's like a, it's, you know, when we worship church, when we worship, strongholds break. When we worship, addictions are broken. When we worship, healing takes place. When we worship. God, thank you for Esther. God, thank you for this scripture. Thank you for King Jehoshaphat showing us where to turn our eyes to when we are fearful. We love you. We praise you. In the mighty name of Jesus, can all the church say amen this morning? Amen. Well, as we go, amen. Amen. Thank you for joining us today, and a special thanks to those who give to Cornerstone. You know, it's because of you, our ministry, it's possible. Uh, you can click the link in the description to give now or visit us at cornerstonelv.com. And if you enjoyed the podcast, you can subscribe, you can share it with friends, share it with family, help us spread God's word. You can also join us live every Sunday. We invite you, 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. We stream service live. Thank you again for listening.